News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, have you ever wondered what your epithet might say? If not, no worries. We are going to take a look, though, at some of the more peculiar ones throughout history. And joining me to do that is Johnny Thompson, philosopher and writer for Big Think. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. This is something we don't talk about all that often, but a bizarre history of epithets. Let's start with the the obvious. What exactly is an epithet? Right. So, yeah, an epithet is the uh, the, the, the few words that you have after a historical name. So I think a lot of your listeners might be familiar with someone like um, William the Conqueror, perhaps, or Alexander the Great, or or Darius the Great, or someone like um, Ivan the Terrible. So the kind of the the bit which comes after their name is is their epithet. It's kind of like a like a little mini autobiography, or kind of like a summation of of a life in a few words. And of course, it's quite important if you want to uh, be remembered well by future generations. You want to secure a really good epithet, because uh, I think even historical figures realise that once you know the history books were written, these these kind of epithets are what people remember you for. Really, so it's really important to secure a good one. Yeah. Yeah, and especially if if you only have a couple of words, uh, you want to make sure you're you're picking the right words or getting the the best ones, aren't you? Well, exactly. And and, and some of the and some of the names that we might discuss today are are yeah, I feel, I, you feel a little bit sorry for them sometimes because sometimes the epithets aren't necessarily that fair. I mean, they had pretty kind of uh, kind of like good careers and they, and they did a lot of good stuff, but they're remembered by these, these few words which come after their names, really, which is, uh, <laughs> I'd say, a little bit slanderous. Well, let's go through some of the, perhaps the lesser known one, like, like you just said, some of the ones people will will remember and, and know about. They're, they're, they tend to be complimentary, but there are some that, that really aren't. So what are some of the more bizarre epithets? Well, absolutely. So you have um, so one of my favourites is Ethelred the Unready, um, because um, I f- well, I, it's a little bit unfair because Ethelred is this Saxon king who was around in like the late tenth century time, um, AD, um, and he was uh, he was king of Saxon Britain, and this was a time when the Vikings were basically marauding through the country and they were kind of like uh, pillaging and destroying places, and he was seven years old when he took over the throne, um, and he inherited the throne after his mum killed his brother. And, and, and basically put him on the throne and claiming that he was he was an easier puppet king, basically. So this young seven-year-old Ethelred had to essentially repel the, the strongest Viking force in a century. And, uh, yeah, history's um, tarred him with the name un, Unready. And, I mean, it's a little bit... Um, so the word unready in, in ancient Saxon actually is a, is a bit different to what we mean it today. It actually, you know, So it comes from the word unread, which means a, a bad counsel or, or folly. So when we say Ethelred the unready, it immediately means that he just had really bad advisors around him and then <laughs> they kind of guided him wrong. I mean, so when, when you're talking about kings in the past, it's quite, it's quite common not to criticize the king per se, because, um, you know, that, that essentially they have kind of divine right to be there according to the um, old, old, older ages and stuff. So what you do is you criticize the, the advisors around him. So calling him Ethelred the Unready would be to say that he had bad advisors. But um, yeah, I mean, he, he had a bad time. It really kind of floundered from defeat to defeat. And eventually he kind of lost Britain, really. He lost um, to King Canute of, of the Vikings, who became king of England for, for two decades. So yes, that's the first one, Ethelred unready um hmm. but my but my all-time favorite one is uh Evalo the, the cabbage um <laughs> which is it, it's not the most kind of noble of names in history and that's and that was intentionally so really so it was kind of like a bit of a, an anti Evalo propaganda after he died so so this is in bulgaria in the 13th century and um back then i mean bulgaria is caught between the rock and the hard place and and, and the rock is 
is the Byzantine Empire and the hard place are the hordes of Mongols who are you know, probably the deadliest, the most feared force for a millennia in in Eurasian continent. Um, so you have in, in Bulgaria at the time an emperor called Constantine Tick, who's essentially just a really incompetent lump, who, whose mm. only skill is that he can he get killed really easy, gets his men killed. So um, when you face against the Mongols, of course, then you know he, he's, he's rubbish. And so you want something better. You want anyone better. And that, and that anyone is is Avelo, who who's a peasant and he keeps ki- um, keeps pigs. So what he does, he, he, he gathers together essentially a militia of farmers who are armed with like pitchforks and, and you know, fairly stinky and stuff. And then what they did, they, they stood up to the Mongols and, and miraculously they managed to beat back the Mongols, at least, at least for a while. And so, um, so Velo, you know, of course, he got this legend kind of like built up around him. And he attracts more and more followers. And eventually Constantine Tick, this emperor of Bulgaria, realizes that, you know, he can't have this, this upstart kind of like doing his job for him. So he ends up just marching an army towards him. And then that army itself is then beaten by Velo, the, the, this, this peasant um, militia leader. Um, and it's even said that Velo himself killed the emperor in this kind of like heroic, kind of like Hollywood-esque, kind of like hand-to-hand combat scene. Um, but I mean, the story doesn't really end very well for Avela because um, when the Byzantines essentially launch a massive invasion of him and his kind of like his his village, and um, he realizes that he hasn't got a chance. So what he does, he petitions the Mongols and says, "Look, guys, I, I will be your puppet king if you want," which is something they do uh, quite often. If you um, kind of basically defeat the Byzantines for for me, and 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 they said no, and they murdered him hmm. instead. And so uh, yeah, yeah I mean, it's a different time, isn't it? Really? Um, <laughs> yes. And yeah, <laughs> and so yeah, and so so they the the Byzantines and the Mongols both kind of like unfairly tarnished him as being the cabbage or sometimes the swineherd, which is a, meant to be this sneering priggish kind of classist kind of put down. But you know, I I think it's quite cool actually. Um, so yeah, you got you got a veil of the cabbage. Um, another one is uh, called, someone called Mithridates, um, the Poison King. Um, and so Mithridates was a, a king of Pontus, which is um, one, was one of Rome's kind of most determined enemies. Um, and his dad was killed by poison, by, by arsenic, we think. Um, and so when he was young, uh, Mithridates basically ran, his, ran off into the woods and embarked on a, on a series of, or a regime, sorry, of, of anti-poison microdosing. He, hmm. he took every poison that was known to the ancient world so he could build up this immunity to him because he was, he was really paranoid and obsessive that he would be killed the same way his dad was killed and he, and, and he wanted to make sure it didn't happen. So, uh, yeah, when he became king, um, he, he carried on this kind of this system of kind of like constantly taking small doses of poison so that he would become immune. And he'd even take condemned criminals and he'd force them to take this or that lethal concoction just to make sure that his, his doses were dialed in correctly. Um, and it all kind of kind of came up with a slightly ironic twist because um, when so he his armies were defeated by Pompey, who was this kind of great Roman gen, general, and, and essentially the Pont, Pontus as a nation was was ended. So he decided he, he tried to to commit suicide, tried to kill himself, but he tried to commil, um, commit suicide by by poisoning himself. Um, and so today, we still we, this this Mithridatism is is the name we give to kind of microdosing. So if you want to take a, a small dose of something to build immunity to it, like. Um, uh, I mean, essentially, alcohol is 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 that really? Is 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 alcohol is a poison? So the more the more alcohol you drink, the better your body is at, at dealing with it. So hmm. that is really a kind of modern form of mithridatism, really. Uh, I don't know how, how many more you have time for. Do you have time for one more? Let's do or? one more. Sure. Let's um, do one more because <laughs> it's the Vikings and the Vikings. Um, they, they love a good epithet. So you have some like Harold Bluetooth, where we get the the Bluetooth kind of communication thing from Harold Bluetooth. And you have Ivar the Boneless, and you have Kettle Flatnose, and Olvir the Child Sparer, and Einstein Foul Fart. 
um, <laughs> which is a, which is a fun one. I mean, given the Vikings weren't the most decorous of people, it's you know it's quite impressive to be called the foul fart, I think. But um, you have uh, you have one character called Half Dan the Bad Entertainer. Um, which I think this is, this is one of the most unfair ones of, of the lot, really, to be honest, because he, he was a really good king. He, 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 he was raids were successful and his lands were always secure and, and his people were very prosperous and he, and he always paid his men on time. But he was really miserly with celebrations that when he would have feasts, um, he would be very kind of like a Spartan with uh, the food and he would give very small amounts of alcohol and, and ale and things. And of course, if you're a Viking, you've just freshly back from a, a hard summer's raiding and risking your life. You want to kind of a good knees up. So when your chief doesn't do that, you kind of like you, you whisper among yourself and say, oh, you know, he's half than the bad entertainer. Um, I say, which is which is cruel, really, given that he was he was quite a good leader. And um, I mean, same as true of someone like, like Charles the Bald in history. Actually, it was an, it's an ironic name. Charles the Bald had a massively full head of hair. Mm. So all we now remember him as being Charles the Bald is, was a joke. And likewise, half Dan, the, the bad entertainer, we remember him as being a bad entertainer when actually, you know, he did quite a lot of good other stuff. But yeah. Great uh, chatting with you uh, this morning. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's check in now with show contributor Scott Schantz. Good morning to you. Hi, Jill. How are you? Very well. Yourself? Pretty good. Do you like this time, the end of the year, <laughs> when we kind of like put wraps up on, on all the stuff? I think so. It's kind of nice to look back, look ahead, that kind of thing. Yeah, I really like uh, like award season when people talk about, oh, this was the best thing of this year. This was the mm-hmm. most thing of that year. And it kind of gives you, uh, I don't know, like a, a, a watermark for where you, it's like, oh, I, I didn't see this movie. And it was like the best movie or I didn't, you know, go <laughs> to this restaurant. Yeah, totally. It's, yeah. I don't know. I, I kind of like it. And Google does this every year. They release uh, a list um, of all the things that we Googled the most. Uh, and they break it down into a bunch of categories. So we talk a lot of news here. Uh, the biggest news stories, the most Googled news stories of 2023. Do you want to do you, do you want to take a guess or do you Ooh. want me to just tell you? I want you to just tell me. OK, number one is the war in Israel. Yes, that okay. Okay, makes sense. Uh, yes. Number two, I, it's funny because in, so see, sometimes you forget about these things because we're kind of preoccupied with something. That uh, the submarine that go that went to see the Titanic. Ooh. That was the second biggest story of uh, 2023. Then there was some hurricanes, uh, some shootings south of the border, Maui fire, and Canada wildfires was one of the most googled things of of uh, 2023. Uh, celebrity passings: uh, Matthew Perry, Tina Turner, Jerry Springer, Sinead O'Connor. You know. Like, oh, yeah, Sinead O'Connor. Uh, the most Googled athletes of 2023, DeMar Hamlin and Travis Kelsey, because of the Taylor Swift thing. You know, I find that kind of interesting. Um, are you a books person? Do you yes, like to read? Sure yeah. Uh, the most Googled books. Number one, My Fault by Mercedes Ron. Oh, I've not read it. Nor have I. <laughs> Number two was called Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros. Still, you got anything there? Nope, I haven't read that one either. Hello Beautiful by Anne Napolitano. Have it on my night table, haven't started it yet. Okay, fantastic. The Wager by David Gran. Ooh, don't have that one. Oh, I read it, it's fantastic. Okay. It's really, really good. And then Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. Mm, I cannot have that one So there's a couple there that you and I touch on, that's good. Uh, (laughs) The most Googled celebrity of 2023, I, I was a bit surprised by this, Jeremy Renner. Was number one. Oh. Because of the snowmobile, right. the snow cat accident. Yes. Um, so, yeah, that happened a little bit earlier. Uh, Pedro Pascal was on there from The Last of Us, which was filmed here. Uh, Jamie Foxx, who had, like, uh, some some um, health concerns over the year. Uh, movies. Number one, 
Barbie. I was gonna I was gonna guess Barbie. I'm not surprised by that. Yeah, Oppenheimer was number two, which was the whole uh, Barbenheimer mm-hmm. thing. Sound of Freedom, which was like sort of a controversial uh, uh, action movie that came out as big in the states. Everything, everywhere, all at once. That was googled a lot at the beginning of the year because it won the Oscar last year. Right. So everything, everywhere, all at once, and then Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. So those those were the five most googled movies uh, from 2023. Uh, songs, you remember there was this, the guy Oliver Anthony, Rich Men North of Richmond. Yes, I remember you talking about him. Yeah, this, that was the most Googled song of 2023. <laughs> uh, and then like a bunch of like pop songs that, you know, I, I don't really care about. TV shows The Last of Us, right, with Pedro Pascal. I've not seen it. Here. I know oh, everyone so raves great. about it, but I it's haven't so seen great. it. Because it's zombies, though, isn't it? But well, yes, but not. Okay, so, <laughs> it, I mean, it's... Apparently on the set, uh, we'll do a little uh, rabbit trail here. Apparently on the set of The Last of Us, they're not allowed to say the word zombie because they're trying to really break out and say that this isn't a zombie thing. It's more like, but I mean, effectively, yes, it is a zombie (laughs) show. Uh, But it's really, it's like well done. And the genre is sort of drifting towards this survivalism thing as opposed to just being zombies. And he's really good. Pedro Pascal, people really like him. Uh, Ginny and Georgia. Everyone I know watched that show. Wow, but it was Googled a lot? Yeah, it was the second most after The Last of Us. I'm very surprised by that. Yeah. Daisy Jones and the Six. That was a good one. I enjoyed that. Great show. Yeah. And then Wednesday, the Wednesday Adams Mm. show. That was good. Yes. Uh, And uh, yeah, let's do, oh, oh, places. I like doing places. Uh, Do you want to, like the things on Google Map, do you want to, you won't get it. (laughs) Central Park was the most Googled place on I'm, Google Maps. I'm assuming the one in, in New York, yes. not the one in Burnaby. No, Central right. Park in New York. Red Rocks Amphitheater. And this is because people are walking around in the park, right? And they right. want to be able to see where, you know, where the things are. The High Line in New York, Bryant Park in New York, and Garden mm-hmm. of the Gods in Colorado Springs. So, yeah, these are just some interesting things that I find, I don't know, it's sort of like an insight into um, the year and what happened throughout the year and uh, what things kind of piqued our interest. You know, like the Jeremy Renner thing was really interesting to me because people were concerned about him. Oh, yeah. You I know? I saw a video the other day. He was dancing in his driveway and I think everybody was quite happy that he right. was, he's making a, a, a good recovery. And But you're right. People were invested in that and following along. Yeah. And so, you know, like some stuff, it's like, uh, you know, lots of Taylor Swift like showing up on places throughout the list. She was like the biggest concert, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, how to get tickets, that type of thing. Um, yeah. So just some interesting sort of insight into into the the year that has been and you know some stuff that we forget about that was like oh yeah that was a huge story but we've just kind of moved on yeah. you know no. like when we found out that the, the submarine was never going to be found it was like let's move on yeah I suppose but <laughs> people still googled it a all lot alright Scott thank you you got it this is Mornings with Simi time for the view from Victoria with the Vancouver Suns Vaughn Palmer Vaughn good morning again to you and good morning, Jill. And Jill, I am trying to think the last time I saw an issue go sideways <laughs> as fast as Ken Sims' plan to obliterate the Vancouver Park Board. I, I'm thinking maybe it must have been John Horgan's fiasco makeover for the Royal BC Museum here in Victoria, which was the subject of a furious denunciation within about 48 hours of the announcement. So... You know, I was sitting here yesterday uh, reading my inbox and I get a press release from the B.C. Conservative Party, John Rustad, weighing in on the park board thing. 
And he says two things. He says, first of all, if the provincial government is going to allow this, they should order a referendum. Let the people of Vancouver decide on whether or not they want to get rid of a democratically elected park board. And he also takes a shot, Rustad does, at Ken Sim. He says that Ken Sim should get his own financial house in order before he starts going after the park board. And I looked at that and I said, well, first of all, you know, you can say what you like about the Conservatives and John Rustad, but he's on his toes. We're still waiting, Jill, as you know, to find out where the NDP stands on this and where BC United stands on this. We've already heard from the Conservatives and John Rustad. Uh, yeah, I saw that news release as well and thought it, w- it was an interesting take on it. And and I was thinking not only, like you said, Vaughn, when was the last time we saw something go sideways like this, but also the last time uh, you and I have spent so much time talking about a civic body yeah. and that yeah. civic and uh, provincial politics uh, have kind of blended together. Yeah, and uh, the main reason for that, I think, I mean, apart from the fact that, you know, Ken Sim is a political force and has only been mayor for what a year is because he can't do this by himself. I know that the city council uh, is dutifully going to vote on what the mayor wants today, but they can say whatever they want. They can't get rid of the park board, not the elected one, without provincial government approval. The park board exists in a provincial law, the Vancouver Charter. They need the help from the New Democrats to get this done They want the New Democrats. The request is to pass the legislative change in the spring session. And I can tell you the early look at this from the New Democrats, they're going, ooh, (laughs) why should we have to wear this thing? Yeah, we like Ken Sim, but uh, I don't know whether the New Democrats want their pre-election session of the legislature, any part of it consumed with what is shaping up as a bitter debate over you know, the issue that Rustad raised, the park board is democratically elected. The commissioners were elected a year ago. They didn't say, vote for us and we're going to get rid of ourselves and <laughs> abolish the board. On the contrary. So it's a, I think Rustad has put his finger on the reason why even people who aren't happy with the record of the park board are going This is kind of an undemocratic way to deal with it. And that's why I think the call for a referendum is not far-fetched. It may be that the New Democrats say, fine, you want this? Put it to the voters and let them decide. Why should we, the provincial government, wear this? As you know, Jill, the New Democrats are already wearing one of these with Surrey. They wish the issue would go away. They wish they'd never gotten into it. I think they're going to be very reluctant to step in something as messy as this in the city of Vancouver. And there was the one line in John Rustad's news release as well, without saying specifically Surrey police. He says they've created a mess by overturning democracy in Surrey and uh, they can't be allowed to make yet another mess in Vancouver, which, like you said, and you've been saying that too, that they, they don't want to have to wear it and have a repeat. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, Brenda Locke is now running ads out in Surrey saying, uh, talking about the NDP tax increase that's coming in Surrey, right? This is a horrible mess. And, you know, as I say, the New Democrats went in. They didn't really go into it with eyes wide open. They did not recognize when they supported the original move and let it happen that there was going to be a reversal in Surrey and they were going to be dealing with it year after year. I think Rustad also raised another 
interesting issue for from a conservative point of view, which is uh, Ken Sim is doing this as a supposed saving of millions of dollars. And Rustad is pointing out what, you know, we know, which is the city of Vancouver has just approved, what, 7.5% increase in property taxes. Mm-hmm. The mayor is increasing the budget for his own office, something he opposed when he ran for office. And they've cut the firefighters budget. So, you know, I think it's, is Rustad is kind of looking at this and saying, this doesn't sound very conservative to me. And I think that's a fair shot as well. My colleague, Dan Fumano, Post Media, looked at this claim that the mayor has made that, oh, getting rid of the Parks Board will save millions of dollars. So Dan tried to find out where that money is. Well, the total annual salary for the six Park Board commissioners that the mayor wants to fire is $150,000 on a budget of $170 million. So it is one-tenth of 1% of the budget. Where are the millions, Dan asked. And, you know, you said yesterday, Jim, uh, Jill, how prepared was Sim for this? So Dan asked the mayor's office yesterday, where are the millions of dollars? Oh, I'll get back to you on that. We'll get back to you on that? They should have the audited financial claim of savings of millions of dollars ready to go if they thought this thing through, and it's looking more and more to me, Jill, like this was a seat of your pants, back of a napkin exercise by the mayor. He did not realize how badly this thing could go sideways. And even if there aren't millions, which it is difficult to try and figure out where they would come from, if you're moving one body and bringing it under the umbrella of council, presumably you're doing the same jobs. You're you're cutting yep. some of the red tape and the redundancy. But even if they came out and said, well, it's not actually going to solve million or save millions of dollars, it is going to streamline the process and make things more efficient. But but it sure. wasn't. You're right. It was just throwing out these claims and saying how great this is going to be and then not being able to answer any questions about it. Yeah. And that's where it reminds me, Jill, of the Royal BC Museum fiasco, where they made all kinds of claims, couldn't really explain why the museum was going to be closed for eight years, couldn't really explain why it had to cost a billion dollars to do it. But I'll say this for John Horgan. I thought it was going to be one of these things that I call the gift that, the gift that keeps on giving. It's mm. a mess that goes on year after year, and I keep getting columns and punditry out of it. But Horgan, to his credit, slammed the brakes on in a, in a month, took all the blame onto himself, and ended the storyline right then and there. And I'm already looking at this park board thing in Vancouver, and I'm wondering if you know, uh, if Ken Sim has any good political advisors, whether they're going to say, gee, boss, you might want to rethink this one and put it off because you need the help of the provincial government on this. And I'm not sure it's going to be there. Continuing now with the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer. And Vaughn, we are moving from the park board to another favorite, and that is Woes at BC Ferries. Yeah, it's an interesting one. We've seen a high level of provincial government political interference in the ferries since the New Democrats came in, and so it makes them a little more accountable for what happens there. Uh, And there's been, you know, in spite of the turnaround and the firing of the CEO and more than a million dollars in severance they paid and installing an NDP cabinet minister to oversee it, 
the ferries are still a source of trouble. So yesterday, the independent commissioner that still oversees the ferries and regulates it approved a ferries plan to add four new vessels to the fleet by 2027. So, you know, if you're waiting in line for the ferry this morning, I don't pop the champagne corks. These ships are not for the major route, Jill. They're for the minor routes. Uh, two of them will be on the Gabriola Island run, and two of them will be on the Quadra Island run. That's important if you live on those islands, but that's not going to deal with the problem between the island and the mainland where we've had most of the trouble. So the troubles continue on BC ferries. Uh, they are planning, Joe, seven brand new major ships. They have a, a plan for that. But the first of those ships won't be in service if all goes well. And when has it ever all gone well on the ferries? First of those ships won't be in service till 2029. So that is not going to be the solution to the problem on the major routes. And I was looking too at uh, when you mentioned the hybrid vehicles and, and uh, remember when that was first announced with such fanfare and this was going to be great and these new vehicle, uh, vessels for BC ferries, but it seems like they have information about them, but still not a whole lot on what they're going to cost. And like you said, they'll oh, be going to those true. smaller routes, but we don't know a whole lot of the details. Yeah, based on the past, you're right. They won't say how much these four new ships are going to cost. They're negotiating with the builders. And the builders will almost certainly not be here in British Columbia. But uh, they're negotiating with the builders based on the experience of the first six smaller vest, uh, ships, hybrids that they commissioned. I'd say at least $200 million for four more. I think the first six cost $300 million, So, And it may be more than that price of building ferries may have gone up in step with the price of just about everything else that we shop for today. So we don't know on that. Uh, New Democrats also, you know, uh, still, uh, they're still getting pushback from the idea that some shipbuilding should occur here in British Columbia. They have so far not done that. They do a lot of servicing here. They don't build ships here because it's a lot more expensive. Uh, you may, I suppose, see some sort of partnership. That may be what they're negotiating. But the real problem for the travelers is the continuing difficulty on the major routes. So you remember, uh, Jill, uh, one of the German-built vessels, Coastal Renaissance, was taken out of service last summer because of motor troubles. It was supposed to be back for the Christmas travel season. Mm -hmm. It is not. It is still laid up. And they're now saying it won't be back in service until March, which would mean it'll be out of service for six months. Uh, you know, I uh, traveled uh, the other day on the weekend on one of the old spirits, which were, for heaven's sakes, built under the Socreds. Remember them. At least they mm -hmm. were. The project was launched, and it's still rumbling along fairly well. It doesn't seem to be having a lot of trouble. Once in a while, there's a bit of servicing on it, but uh, it's interesting. The Ferry Corporation has had more trouble with the new stuff, including the stuff they've built offshore. I mean, the Coastal Renaissance is a German-built vessel, and I know people don't associate mechanical difficulties with German engineering, but in this case, there's a problem. And, and a, a series of problems. And like you said, six months seems like a long time for one vessel to be out yeah. of commission. Yeah. yeah. And the other bit of news out of the ferries yesterday is, again, you mentioned how they launched these plans of massive publicity and everything is wonderful. 
Uh, a while back, we got this grandiose launching of a plan to remake all the terminals and bring in state-of-the-art technology so you'd be able to walk in with your smartphone and get on the ferry. Your, your car would be automatically, when you, when you checked in at, a, at an electronic terminal, directed to the right lane. This was all going to be state-of-the-art stuff, and it was all going to be like, gee, the ferries are joining the same thing as, as the airlines and the transportation industry. They've put that on hold yesterday. Our colleague Rob Shaw reported this on check last night. Uh, the ferries have withdrawn their application to the ferry co commissioner for a terminal technology upgrade. They say it needs more work and more study. And so that one is on hold as well. So again, uh, yeah, I know people on the island are kind of obsessed with these ferries <laughs> for all kinds of reasons, but... The troubles continue. I would say uh, the transition has to the NDP-controlled era has been a lot more bumpy than the New Democrats hoped for. Yeah, and uh, was it a surprise that they withdrew the application? Uh, they said, the ferry uh, Jimenez uh, did speak to Jack last night, and he said, look, we talked uh, to the uh, technology firm that we were looking at to do this work, and there's a whole bunch of questions we still haven't answered. It's still complicated. And we decided we better not go ahead at this time. We better go back. I don't think they're going all the way back to the drawing board, but they're just not ready for this transition. Uh, Ferry Corporation has had a lot of trouble with uh, technology, uh, their own website. Uh, Jill, everybody has a story about it not working very well. So I guess I'm not surprised that it turned out they hadn't thought the whole thing through since that kind of a comment applies to a lot of what ferries have been doing under the New Democrats. All right, Vaughn, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Bye-bye, Joe. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's check back in with show contributor Scott Schantz. Good morning again. Hi, Jill. How's it going? Very well. You have been looking into why the Office of the Human Rights Commissioner is looking into the Vancouver Police Department. Yeah, so the Human Rights Commissioner launched an inquiry. Uh, the idea is to like shed light on some of these things that we heard about during the decampment. Remember that when mm -hmm. they, er, at the earlier in the year, they moved a whole bunch of tents off East Hastings. Um, exclusion zones and press freedom. Those are the things that they're looking into uh, because there's a lot of um, controversy around what happened then. So I actually spoke with Kasari Govender. She's the BC Human Rights Commissioner. And I started right there, just asked her to explain to me like what this inquiry is and how it's all going to work. So the inquiry that we've just launched is just looking into one particular question that arose during the April 2023 decampment along Hastings. Um, so it's not looking into the decampment itself. But the fact that there are numerous reports of media being excluded or restricted from accessing the zone where people were being evicted or, or forcibly removed from the encampment. And so in that context, we're looking at was media excluded uh, and what was the authority to to exclude them? Um, and was that exclusion in accordance with human rights principles and law? Okay, and what have you found so far that has moved us in the direction of wanting to do this inquiry into April's decampment? 
Yeah, I mean, we have this is just the beginning in terms of actually doing the investigation, but certainly we have enough to to raise some red flags to inspire us to look more deeply into this. So, for example, um, we heard numerous media reports at the time back in April uh, earlier this this year that said people are being excluded on the day of this decampment effort. And so it was really in that moment that we thought mm, there's something here that there needs to be some oversight to ensure that someone's watching this and make sure this is in compliance with law, and particularly in our context, in compliance with human rights. Right. Yeah. And I think it's it's sort of it goes without saying, but the idea that uh, journalism and media's free access to these type of situations is a human rights issue, the, the ability to get the true story of what's happening out to the public, because there are a lot of versions of of what happened, kind of depending on who you ask. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's really an, an incredibly important role that a free media has in a democracy. It helps ensure that people can all play an oversight role in a way that we all are able to see into processes that happen, particularly where police are engaging with highly marginalized communities, uh, such as in this case. So we know that demo that our democracy really depends on a, a free a free press, uh, a media that can function to bring us the truth and help us see into places that we might not otherwise see. And that's why it's really concerning if media is restricted in this kind of circumstance, again, particularly where police are engaging with such marginalized populations. And you mentioned the Vancouver Police Department. They have done their own board meeting. It was like an internal inquiry. Um, why was that not sufficient? Well, so that was based on a complaint made by a member of the public, as I understand it, to the Office of the Police Complaints Commissioner. And the Vancouver Police Board heard this matter at their last board meeting. We only know what's on the public record, uh, which is that they, uh, they looked into it. They said there was no exclusion zone and the matter was closed. Um, so we're going to delve much deeper into this issue. We're really going to understand what were the facts here, who was there an exclusion zone? Were media outlets restricted? How many was everybody restricted? When did people get access? And for what reasons were they excluded? And again, what's the lawful authority for the police to do that? And importantly, from our perspective, is that in line with human rights principles? With regards to the VPD's inquiry, and I understand that it's much more complicated than this, but even if it was just sort of a word against word, like journalists' word versus the police's word, my understanding is that the police inquiry didn't include any media people or journalists who were there that could even say, well, actually, that's not true. It was simply the police investigating the police. How is this going to differ from that? Our process will entail, first of all, I have the power under the Human Rights Code to actually make an order to compel public bodies to release information, data that I need to conduct an inquiry or investigation. That's where I have some teeth under the Human Rights Code as the Human Rights Commissioner. So I've issued that order to really get all, all the facts, to get all the, the records that they have in their possession about how this decision was made, for example. So I've issued that order to both the city and to the police to better understand 
how these decisions were made, what legal authority did they rely on, and so on. And then we'll be also having conversations with people who were impacted, so community organizations who work in this space, as well as media outlets and journalists to understand the impact. We are keeping the scope of this as narrow as we can in, in the context of wanting to produce some answers in a fairly short time frame, but absolutely talking to people who were impacted and getting the facts straight is a key piece of what we're doing here. And that entails having those conversations. Now, there might be those who are thinking, well, this is over. It happened. Whatever we discover from this inquiry, uh, it's, it's already been done. So what sort of consequences could we potentially see of the inquiry? So um, I have the ability to make recommendations, of course, uh, to those we do investigations or inquiries about. And so I assume I will be making recommendations depending on what we what we discover from all of this. Um, so that's one important way this could make a difference is what should change the next time a, a police agency or a city is considering excluding or restricting media access in this kind of context. But there's another piece here, which is that sunlight helps us keep our keep ourselves clean, if we can say it that way, which is that when there's oversight bodies making sure that, that this information is public, that public bodies who may do things that are contrary to human rights know that there is an oversight body that is watching to make sure there is compliance with human rights, that are the human rights of our public and our minorities and majority populations are respected and promoted. That has a role in, just in and of itself in ensuring human rights are respected. And I think it's it's sort of it goes without saying, but these are the things that uh, keep our society accountable for everybody. And democracy dies in darkness. Bring these things into the light and the truth fears um, no investigation. So do you anticipate uh, pushback or uh, conflict with either the city or the VPD uh, as it relates to this? Well, I mean, the the order is the order. I have the ability under the Human Rights Code, if I uh, file that order with the BC Supreme Court, which is what we're planning on doing here, that um, that order has the force of a court order. And mm -hmm. so there really is no, there's no, there's no leeway here not to comply with the requirement to give me the information. Um, and so I, I fully expect cooperation with with the order as we've issued it. Um, I will say in answer uh, to your last question that, um, you know, people people may wonder why is a, a public body like BC Human Rights uh, Commissioner spending money on looking into a 45 minute time period so long ago? And it is the narrowest investigation that we've conducted to date in our four years of existence. But I think it's incredibly important that, um, that our oversight stretches to police, that we make sure that our bodies that have so much power in our community have have effective oversight as well and, and ensure that they're doing their jobs and they're doing their jobs in accordance with law. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it is expected that very controversial motion brought forward by Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim to ask the province to move forward with asking the province to amend the charter to lead the way to potentially abolishing the park board. It's expected that will pass today, but that will start a much lengthier process and still a lot of debate on whether or not the park board is an elected or is a necessary elected body in the city of Vancouver. Well, joining me now now is Melissa DiGenova, a former NPA city councillor, also uh, a uh, park board commissioner. Melissa, thank you so much for taking some time this morning. Good 
morning, Jill. Uh, I know you were also at the meeting where there were a lot of fireworks, to say the least. What are your thoughts now on where things sit as far as the divisiveness because of this and with the fact that very likely that motion will be approved later today with the current council going ahead with trying to get rid of the park board? Well, uh, first of all, I'd like to say that those fireworks uh, certainly were nostalgic of previous boards and previous days. And and, uh, the group that has come together over this of 30 former park commissioners, I think it's a testament just to how important the park board is itself when you have uh, former commissioners uh, who who span over the political spectrum from COPE, Vision, NPA, TEAM, and the Greens. I mean, there were times that we often all couldn't agree on anything, but we all have come together because we agree that that the park board's integral uh, to our democracy and it it should not um, be abolished in our city. So I just wanted to mention that just being at park board on Monday night, that was really apparent. But I mean, Jill, we have 250 parks in our city, more than that, actually, and 24 community centers. And, you know, I I look at this, an appointed park board would need the same staff. Council's too busy to supervise them, and it wouldn't be any better. In fact, I think it would be a lot worse. And, you know, I think city council needs to stay in its lane. They haven't even been able to deliver on some of their promises, like 100 nurses um, or their promise to lower taxes. And they don't have the capacity to take on more right now. Um, And the park board is the best way to protect the green space in our city. Then how can every other city do this without having an elected body, without having a separate park board? Well, I I think other cities uh, do it. But do they do it as well? When you look at, and I just want to, you know, uh, put, a, put a plug in there for the community center associations who've been lost in this. Uh, many are a group of uh, former park board commissioners uh, that came together really organically. It's heard from these community center associations. Eleven of them, it's my understanding, have signed a letter um, that's going to council today. Many more will probably sign that letter when these boards meet. But these are volunteer, nonprofit boards who fund things like backpack programs to send kids at Raycam Community Center and other community centers home with food over the weekend to tide them over. These are little things that happen that make a huge difference in our city that I don't think the public really understands. So there's a lot that the city will need to pick up if these community center associations do walk away from the table. Um, that will significantly impact the city, losing those volunteers, uh, losing all of that extra money that comes in through gaming grants and your other grants. Um, but I also think when we look at other cities and their planning of green space, you know, we have a democratically elected park board that hold our council's feet to the fire. So when they when there is new green space um, on the chalk chopping block or money to acquire new green space on the chopping block, we see a democratically elected park board who, you know, answers to the people who elected them up there fighting for that green space at City Hall. And park board's been chronically underfunded for years. Uh, It's not about one political party or another, but I think that really the answer to the question here is to fund the park board, not not for council to take on more uh, than they can handle, which I think we're seeing. I mean, yesterday, uh, this has been a huge distraction from the city budget. Yesterday, the mayor and council passed the budget and cre- increased our taxes 8%. 
Last year, they increased the taxes 11%. In two years, that's almost 18%. And there hasn't been any significant funding in there for park boards. So I feel that the park board's been set up for failure, and I'm not sure how the city would do this any differently. We're talking about this on the same day. We now know that Kitts Pool is is crumbling, is leaking about 30,000 litres of water uh, every hour and uh, is, is in very, very bad shape. Is that not one example, though, of infrastructure, things that have not been kept up under the park board? Well, I, I would argue, though, that city council funds that. So how, do, how are they going to do this any differently? They give Park Board a global budget. And again, it's been chronically underfunded. And if you have an appointed Park Board, which is what's been alluded to, you're going to have people who are afraid to stand up to the people who appointed them. So a democratically elected Park Board is going to fight for that funding to fix that pool more so than I think an appointed board would. I do think that it is an issue, but then I think City Council needs to look at how much they've been underfunding the Park Board in our city. And I also think we have to look at the fact um, that when you look at our board and, you know, there's been several people who have come together. There was recently a letter to the editor in the Vancouver Sun that said, you know, planners come from all across the world to Vancouver and they say, whatever you do, do not get rid of your independently elected park board. Look at how you planned your green space. And the mandate of the park board is to protect um, and preserve our parks and our green space. Um, that is their mandate. It's not about zoning and housing and providing you know, w- good water and sewer services, which is what city council is mandated to do, and they need to stay in their lane. All right, Melissa DiGenova, appreciate you taking the time this morning. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. As you've been hearing on the news, Canada has voted in favour of a non-binding United Nations resolution. It is one that calls for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. The resolution passed the UN General Assembly with 153 votes in favour, 10 against and 23 abstentions. And this vote is certainly getting a lot of reaction. And joining me to talk about it a little bit more is Warren Kinsella, lawyer, author, political consultant, consultant and former special advisor to the Right Honourable Jean Chrétien. Warren Kinsella, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me back. Uh, I know you've written about this and uh, your column has just come out as well. I'm curious, though, how significant do you think this is, this shift away from Canada, which would usually support Israel, usually vote along uh, the same lines as the U.S.? How significant is this vote? It is significant. Uh, it's regrettable. But, you know, last night as it was breaking, I was watching CNN and, you know, our retired senior general, the, the U.S. Armed Forces indicated it was very unhelpful. And it's not just unhelpful to Israel. It's unhelpful to the United States. Um, it, the other thing, I think it is ultimately unhelpful to Canada because it is a complete contradiction of what we've said previously. And it's a complete contradiction of what the prime minister and his global affairs minister have said. And, and it's confusing, you know, and given the fact that it happened in the same week, that a large group of Muslim members of the Laurier Laurier Club, which is the main donors of the Liberal Party left, it, it you know raises suspicion that there may be a connection to that, which would be really regrettable. And, and a connection in, in what way? And I know there, there are those suspicions and people talking about that, but what, what dots are kind of being connected there? 
the feeling within the Muslim community. Uh, they're better, you know, capable of speaking for themselves. But uh, certainly it's been reported that they're unhappy with the position of the Liberal Party up until last night. And so a group of uh, Muslim individuals, self-identified Muslim individuals in the Laurier Club left uh, and said that they were quitting the Liberal Party because of its position. And then just a few days later, this vote takes place. I, is there a connection? Maybe, maybe not. We'll never know. Um, the one thing that I think, you know, has been forgotten by the Prime Minister and his Global Affairs Minister is, you know, as they call for a ceasefire here, there already was one. Mm-hmm. There was a ceasefire that had been in place. It was broken by Hamas on October 7th. So, you know, again, Israel is being targeted for action, but Hamas and its allies are not. Does it also show uh, on that note, uh, kind of, uh, not, I don't know if it's a lack of understanding or or with the foreign affairs minister, Melanie Jolie, uh, defending this and trying to explain why Canada voted this way, but to, to, to take it and to... to try and figure out the explanation, it's still suggesting that a ceasefire uh, would lead to some kind of working together with Israel and Hamas, which is impossible. That's not that's not something that, that's even on the table, but it seems like this resolution and supporting it suggests that it could happen. Yeah, and it's absurd. And, you know, like, forget about what Israel and the United States and the rest of us have to say. Take a look at what Hamas says. You know, in Article 13 of their charter since 1998 they've said that peace conferences and ceasefires are a waste of time quote unquote and that you know the only permitted course for you know for them is jihad which is a holy war on jews and non-believers so like you know it, it just feels like last night was playing into the strategy of Hamas and, and you know, delay and, and obfuscation and games to give them time to rearm and, and redeploy their, their troops around Gaza and the, and the West Bank. It's just it, it, maybe it doesn't have any meaningful value, uh, you know, meaning on the ground, but like symbolically, it just looks terrible because it looks like Canada doesn't know which lane it's driving in. Like, you know, our position seems to change on a daily basis. It also took quite some time. Canada, and there was criticism, and again, at the focused, I think, on the foreign affairs minister in, in being slow to use decisive language to call out Hamas for what happened on October 7th and what is continuing to happen. Now with this vote, we've heard from Israel's ambassador to Canada saying his country is deeply disappointed that Canada voted in favor of this resolution. Uh, how, do, how, does, how do we move forward from this? So, or what do you think the fallout will continue to be? Well, you know, as you and I have talked about before, we're not a global power. We're not a superpower. We don't have much military might anymore uh, because of successive governments underfunding our military. We don't really have any diplomatic strength anymore. We're not highly regarded within the G7 or the G20. So all we've really got is our words, you know, and our reputation. And our reputation is uh, as a broker between these different factions and these warring nations. And like to your exact point you know we look at our global affairs minister took her 62 days more than two months to recognize the atrocities that were committed against israeli women and girls on october 7th 
62 days to acknowledge what happened there. So when if you know, if you're an Israeli or if you're a Jew in Canada and you said this, this government doesn't speak for me. You know, it believes in injustice and protecting women unless they're Jewish women. And that's just one example. And so this is why I say, you know, for a nation like ours, we have to be consistent. We have to be clear because we don't have any tanks or, or guns to deploy to Israel to help out. We, we've got to show the world that we've got a position that is morally coherent. And, and we haven't done that. And you know, again, last night, we're calling for a ceasefire when just a few days before we said we wouldn't. Where is Canada? It's hard to figure out these days. Uh, it wasn't only uh, Israel's ambassador to Canada saying uh, he was disappointed in this vote. Uh, it was also a, a Liberal MP, a, a couple of Liberal MPs, including uh, Anthony Housefather, saying that he didn't agree with this. Uh, how uh, how significant is that, that members of the party itself are coming out saying this was not the right move? Well, it wasn't voting against a budget, so they're not going to topple their, their government by expressing themselves in this way. But it certainly is indicative of a problem internally. You know, when a member of a governing party goes against their own party, and I say this as somebody who used to advise a prime minister, it's a big deal. And it can be a big problem. Because usually if there's two, I can guarantee you, Jill, there's probably 20. And, um, you know, those two members, I think, did something that actually takes quite a bit of guts, is to say to the prime minister, you're wrong, and to say it as publicly and as clearly as they did. So, you know, the, the, the NDP seem to be all of one mind. You know, they're not terribly supportive of Israel, but at least you know where they stand. Um, the conservatives, you know where they stand. They're pretty supportive of Israel, although not these days Ukraine. The Liberal Party, they're just all over the map. Uh, you know, and they're sucking and blowing at the same time. You just can't figure out where they stand. And it makes us look terrible internationally. And, you know, here at home, it confuses voters. They just they can't figure out where does the government of Canada stand. And that's a big problem. Warren, always appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks, my friend. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. While the federal government is dusting off a second World War era housing plan and the goal is to ignite the pace of home construction in Canada, this was an announcement made by Housing Minister Sean Fraser confirming what Global News had reported earlier in the week that the Liberals are going to take that nearly 80-year-old program off the shelf and try and revamp it. It was run by what was at the time known as the Wartime Housing Limited and it provided standardized housing blueprints prints to builders. So how could this work now? Let's talk a bit more about this with Mark Lee, Senior Economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Mark, thank you so much for taking some time this morning. Yeah, nice to join you. I know you've talked a lot, you've written a lot about housing and looked at the housing market and some of the challenges. What are your thoughts on the federal government dusting off this plan? Yeah, I mean, well, two things. I mean, first of all, I think the federal government is taking has been taking a, a real beating on housing over the past year. Uh, they're losing ground to the opposition, which has sort of claimed the high ground around uh, housing uh, affordability. Uh, so they've been launching uh, several measures to try to you know get back, uh, including you know removing the GST on on new purpose built rental housing. This one it feels a little bit like it's an important. A development, 
But by framing it as reverting back to the wartime effort and all of that, I think they're really overplaying what is actually um, on on the table. Um, So there's a bit of a political spin um, wrapping around all of this. But in a sense, the core idea is the Vancouver special. You know, listeners who've been driving around the lower mainland for years will have seen in Vancouver and in Burnaby and other municipalities, this kind of standard, boxy uh, Vancouver special. It, a lot of them were built over the 20 years from the sort of the mid-60s to the mid-80s. They had uh, they allowed you to have like uh, a full apartment in the basement uh, first floor, uh, as well as one above. So they became very popular with uh, immigrant families, multi-generational families where you have the grandparents living down below uh, and that kind of thing. We've also done this type of thing in Little Orn Lane with a lot of the three and four story walk-up apartments. Like they're all basically boxy similar designs. So this is just a reversion back to those ideas. Uh, and I think really what we need in the moment is a modern version of the Vancouver special. Like not the exact same thing that we had back in the 60s, but you know, uh, you know, four to eight story multi-unit residential building built to the highest energy efficiency standard that are you know, preparing us for the, the, uh, the world and the economy that we have, and then being able to replicate those um, you know, in not just Vancouver and B.C., but across the country uh, in ways that bring down the cost of developing new housing. So isn't this kind of, I know they're, they're billing it as, as reviving this World War II era plan, but isn't this exactly what the B.C. government has already announced in that putting the call out to get, I think it was 10 different designs that would kind of take the place of the, the Vancouver special model, that these would automatically be approved, and, and even things that, that similar to the, what the federal minister was saying, that it would be include garden suites, laneway homes, different types of housing. It sounds very similar to what has already been announced by the B.C. government. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. I mean, obviously, this would be spanning across Canada, so accounting for some you know slightly dip, slight differences in climate conditions and, and that sort of thing. So it's good to see both the federal government and the BC government uh, appreciating the merits of this kind of approach. You know, you don't have to pay for architect fees uh, by having standard designs. Uh, you can get them uh, more quickly approved by your local government. You know, that's been a major bottleneck for developers. Um, you know, all of those things just, you know, allow us to um, to you know, produce housing more quickly uh, in line with the need for new housing uh, in Canada. And so this isn't going to revolutionize uh, housing development, but it's one small piece that I think can contribute to an overall uh, progression in terms of developing more affordable housing. Uh, but again, when you talk about kind of uh, overplaying it to, to what, what is actually in this announcement and what uh, the federal minister announced, and, and even uh, kind of going back to what the prime minister said a few weeks ago when he did a bit of an about face and said, well, actually, housing isn't a federal government responsibility. It's it's the provinces, which it is. So what what will this plan actually do if the provinces are already doing this? Well, it's hard to know. I mean, you think that uh, BC Housing on the one hand and CMHC, the federal crown corporation on the other, will be talking to each other. Um, maybe they need to have some sort of design competition so that they're not just inventing things out of their heads and expecting developers to, to build them. We want things that are going to work uh, in the in the local context. And we want a multiplicity of designs, um, you know, for different types of, of density and different types uh, of lots. So I think, you know, the devil's in the details 
around how this this plays out. You know, certainly we have a federal government in here that's grasping at straws a little bit in terms of of its housing agenda, uh, but it is moving in the right direction. It's just not as revolutionary as the news release would lead you to think. Right? Um, is are they missing out on on potential opportunities in that often when we look at uh, the federal government's role in housing, people will look back to when they were very heavily involved in housing co-ops and in rental housing and, and parts of the market that are really lacking right now. Is there room, do you think, or should they be focusing more on that? Yeah, I mean, I think both the federal government and the provincial government need to invest substantially in the development of new non-market housing. So, uh, you know, purpose-built rental housing that's run by nonprofits so that you're not being charged the, the most expensive market rents all the time. Cooperatives are a really good model. Both the feds and the province have talked about doing this for many years now, and they just don't seem to be um, putting the money on the table to get these done. And so certainly here in BC, we've seen some great reforms of late in terms of allowing more density and more capacity to be built. But private sector developers simply aren't going to build for low to middle income households because they're not profitable at the at the given the cost of housing uh, where it is uh, right now. So we really need those senior governments to step in and build the affordable housing that, that you know, just ordinary working uh, people who you know, don't have professional jobs, uh, that they're going to be able to live in and support a family. And does it also, I didn't see any mention of this in the announcement, but it's also great to have goals and to say this is really going to accelerate building and and do it in a way that's going to cut down on these fees. But it doesn't in any way address the labor shortage and the fact that even if you wanted to build, uh, greatly expand on building, there, there aren't the crews and even that's a huge challenge right now. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something that we need to ramp up in particular. I mean, one thing that you can do with this kind of more modularized housing approach with standardized templates is you can start to innovate around housing. So instead of building the house on site, uh, there are new modularized techniques that build the components in a factory, you know, far away, uh, and then ship them on site for assembly. So it's a different type of labor requirement that you need, but there's potential for a lot of cost reductions by reducing the amount of labor per house uh, that you build uh, on site. So, but, but definitely it needs to be paired with, uh, uh, with uh, additional training and apprenticeships and uh, you know, a pipeline of, of skilled labor to make sure this can all happen. Mark Lee, we'll leave it there for this morning, but thank you so much for joining us. It was great chatting with you today. Okay, good to talk to you. This is Mornings with Simi. We are making sense of the markets with Lori Pinkowski, a senior portfolio manager at Canaccord Genuity. You can contact her team at 604-695-LORI or visit the website at pinkowski.ca. Lori, good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well. Yourself? I'm doing well. Markets are in the green again this morning, uh, showing that investors, um, you know, are, are are still strong here in December. This fourth quarter has been uh, amazing for most asset classes, I will say, and most indices are moving towards their all-time highs and and making that recovery, which is really important. Uh, today's move is coming after U.S. Uh, producer price index measures uh, came in at just rising 0.1%, and that's as expected. 
And this is, again, after U.S. inflation data yesterday showed that inflation came in at 3.1% as expected. So, again, the reports still show that some work needs to be done, but inflation has obviously come way down from where it was, and this is what central banks around the world are really looking for. Um, And so what we're going to be looking towards today, of course, is the Fed meeting. And um, they're expected to leave interest rates steady. Uh, Obviously, that's the last interest rate decision of the year. This would be the third pause in a row. And really what we're looking for now is when are they going to start reducing rates and by how much? And uh, the expectation is that they could reduce by one to one and a quarter uh, percentage points next year. Uh, And we're also looking for that. That, uh, from the Bank of Canada as well next year and, and starting early next year. We're talking spring uh, or mid-year for the U.S. and it'll be interesting to, to see what they have to say today in terms of the Fed. Yeah, interesting. And uh, I know a lot of people waiting and watching that for sure. What about Canadian banks and what we're seeing here? Yeah, so despite a slower economy, <clears throat> sorry, rising unemployment and rising housing costs, uh, Canada's major banks are, expe- are experiencing a surge, and especially their stock prices as of late, too. And this is coming after news that uh, Canada's banking regulator, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, has chosen not to increase capital requirements by the country's largest lenders. So you would ask yourself, well, why is that important? Um, to us, it's important uh, because the domestic stability buffer, kind of a precautionary fund to really absorb some of those potential losses during economic turndowns uh, remains at three and a half percent. And these guys are going to see more risks than you and I will ever see in the banking sector. So that they decided to keep it as is, um, you know, gives us some confidence in, um, in our banking system here in Canada. Because again, when you think about uh, rates moving higher and mortgage rates moving to where they where they are. Obviously, it's concerning for many Canadians. And what we don't want to see is people walking away from their homes, their mortgages, and so on. Um, and that's why some of the banks have putting been putting aside um, loan loss provisions for that exact reason. And so if the regulators are saying, no, you don't have to put more and more aside, I think that's very positive. We always like hearing the word confidence. That's a good one to be talking about. Uh, Lori, this is the kind of, the time of year as well. People are spending more. It can be very expensive with the holidays. I'm sure you get asked a lot of questions about cash flow and proper planning. Well, exactly. I mean, cash flow management during the holiday period can be tricky, especially when we've seen prices move higher as we have in the last year and a half. So again, you just want to plan accordingly to to what your budget is. And and we have some kind of uh, holiday tips that we've come up with. So set a holiday spending budget. As with anything in life, the best way to have a successful cash flow plan for your holiday season um, is to look ahead. <clears throat> Discuss a gift spending budget uh, with family and friends. This is a good idea too, because you know it's like going to Christmas and you spend way more than the other person. You know, have, have that conversation about what that budget is, um, and uh, and request a and make a Christmas wish list early so you can take advantage of online and seasonal sales. And of course, we saw Black Friday have a lot of uh, discounts, and some of those are continuing, is what I've seen. Uh, even on Amazon. 
Uh, avoid topping up gifts. So, you know, you've already bought that gift, but then you see something at the till there that maybe that person would like and you're going to pick it up. Try to hold back. You've already bought the gift. Um, and this is a really good one too, buying gifts as a group. Um, you know, if somebody wants, you know, snowboard gear or something, you know, well, that's a pretty expensive gift. And so you can get other members from the family to kind of uh, contribute to that one gift for that person. And really prioritize your spending, you know, who are you buying for and, um, you know, what is it exactly that they need? Because you can always make things as well, make cookies, you know, to add on to a gift, buy something smaller. Again, look for those deals. Yeah, it's great advice. And I like what you said, too, about shopping earlier, that whole idea of being organized. I, I tend to fall into that trap, though, and then the topping up because either I've forgotten that I bought something or you've got more time. But when you actually have it written down and you've got those those pointers, it's easier to, to keep it top of mind and not fall into those traps. Exactly. I think writing down the plan is is key, but you, you're totally right. If you buy too early, then you end up forgetting what you bought. But uh, we do have some also, my team came up with uh, top five gift ideas, and I thought they were great. So one of those is a gift experience uh, hockey game, which I just went to yesterday. Go Canucks Go. They are doing awesome. Um, concert tickets, Cirque du Soleil, cooking class together. Uh, number two, they came up with pickleball paddle set. And I can't mm. tell you how many of my clients have picked up fat pickleball in the last uh, couple of years. Uh, heated electric blanket or socks keeps you cozy at night here in uh, B.C., um, air tags, huge one. Uh, if you travel, putting them in your suitcase. I was once in, once in Amsterdam. They lost all my luggage, but it was already in Spain. I would have had no idea had they not had air tags in my bags. Uh, great gift. And uh, the last one is board games. You know, keep it simple, keep it real, get back to the good old days. Uh, face-to-face board games. And uh, I thought that was also a, a wonderful idea. Yeah, that's a good, uh, uh, different things on that list. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm finding people, when you started there and talked about the gift experiences, I feel like there is a big shift in that for so many people, we have enough stuff and don't want to accumulate more stuff. But if you can get an experience or something that could be that can be consumed, there, there's something really nice about that. Exactly. I, I speak German, so I always say life is about the Erfahrung, which means the experiences. So that's the way I tend to go for uh, for gifts. And uh, and there's so many uh, great things to do out there in the lower mainland. So, and again, I, I'm going back to the, the shop earlier. It might be a little bit late for that, given that here we are, it's December 13th, but never never too late to, to try and get a head start to, and follow that advice when you're, like you, like you said, so many people really trying to manage that cash flow, especially at the time of year. Well, exactly. And like I was saying, a lot of those um, Black Friday or Cyber Monday gifts are still, or deals, sorry, I should say, are still out there, or at least to some degree. Um, when I was looking on Amazon, I, I saw a lot of discounts still. So so even though yeah, you're right, we are kind of mid-December here, uh, there's still deals to be had. So uh, let's hope our listeners uh, get out and, and get some of those deals and oh. have, a, have a great holiday season too. All right. Yeah. Keep all of that, so all of, that top of mind. Lori, Great advice, especially at this time of year. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Great talking to you. This is Mornings with Simi. 